You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with me, Sam Ball. And John's not with us this week, but we are joined with a special guest, Flosser Invest. So first of all, thank you for coming on the podcast today, Flosser. Thanks for having me, Sam. Really delighted to be here. So for anyone who doesn't know Flosser, you can follow him on Twitter at Flosser Invest, which I'd say is definitely worth doing, by the way. But for anyone who doesn't already know you, do you want to just talk a bit about how you became interested in in investing and how you got to where you are, really? Sure. So, I mean, I, I, I had a good think about this and it actually, I'd say it actually goes, my initial interest goes back to childhood. And there's a few key points that I'll just elaborate on. So as a child, my dad was a financial advisor for a big kind of insurance company. And he used to sell uh, unit trusts and funds and this kind of thing. So I used to overhear and talk to, talk to him about it and, and that kind of thing. But in terms of shares, and you know, I don't know how old you are, Sam, but in the... in the, in the 25. So this is way before you were born. Uh, but in the, in the 1980s, when I was like 10, 11 the government at the time was privatizing a lot of industries. So, so BT in 84, British Gas, British Airways. And this was quite a big thing. There was, there was these massive TV campaigns. I remember there was one called Tell Sid for British Gas. And all of a sudden, people were able to own these shares. And my, my dad took part in these. And, and, and you know, I think 5 million people overnight became private investors. Um, and, and I was like, I, I, something triggered why well, you, you actually own a bit of a company. So that was my sort of first awareness of shares. And what very, very sad, but during school holidays, I used to, we, before the internet, uh, there was something called teletext on television. Did you ever come across that? I did come across it. Yeah. <laughs> so CFAX, which was BBC, you used to go on a page and you used to be able to see share prices. And I used to pretend I had like 100 quid and buy all these and pretend to buy shares at the beginning of a day in these like 1980s companies, Cabri Schweppes, ICI, and then see how much uh, money I, you know, fictional money I, I could make. So that was, that was a kind of as a child, but then later on, the thing that really triggered um, was, was Apple, where I was, I was a fan of Apple as a, I became a massive fan of Apple as a consumer. So I bought a, an iMac, this, this model they had, the G4, which, which had this dome. It was only around for a year. And then, and then the iPod in 2001 and 2007. And I, I had a look at them as a company and I was like, hang on a minute. If I'd invested in Apple shares in 2002, then it, by the time they launched the iPhone, they would have gone up 15 times. And I was like, well, I'm a fan. I, I, I love this company. Why didn't I do that? So, so from that moment, I, I started playing around a little bit, mainly with funds rather than shares. Um, and then in, in about 2010, I made the decision to start getting more serious and buy some actual companies. And I also found out about um, ISAs, uh, where then I think you could invest like 10,000 10, pounds in an ISA. And I decided, right, I've got my pension and uh, so, you know, that's, that's the sort of safe bit. So I'm going to have a bit more adventure and risk and took the decision then to start building some positions and portfolio and accept a high level of risk. And that's just carried on. I've just regularly dripped in month after month, a small portion of my uh, income uh, until today. Okay. So what was, um, what was your 
pension in, if you don't mind me asking? Was it just a default plan or? A default company plan. And uh, yeah, it's still, it's still, um, it still kind of is, to be honest. So I see that, you know, most of my pension is in kind of tracker, um, tracker funds where it kind of gets adjusted depending on your age and lifestyle. So, so the way I see it, that's, that's almost like a passive side of my, uh, that's, that's, that's a kind of safe bet passive and part of my investing that I don't really touch and that tracks the market in the long term. And that gives me the confidence to be more active from a, from a kind of shares portfolio point of view that I manage through mainly through ISAs. Okay, so when did you, because Apple is in your portfolio now, so when yeah. did you actually buy it then? Was that one of the first stocks that you bought? It was, it was, it was, it was in that initial group. Yeah, I mean, I, I did have the share I had for longest was Unilever because uh, I'd, I'd started my career there and there was a kind of share scheme. And, and so I'd seen, I'd already kind of held Unilever for about 10, 10 12 years. Um, but then then I, I, I filled out my, what's the form called? A W8 Ben form. Yeah. Um, and then set up a Hargreaves Lansdowne account. And then I started buying into some, you know, some of the, the big emerging American uh, companies like Amazon, uh, like Apple. Apple was one of the first, that was about 20, 2011, 2012, I would say. And I started sort of building a portfolio from there, from there on in. And then, so initially it was, um, you know, very, it was probably more mixed UK uh, and US positions, but um, over time, it probably, um, I probably weighted more attention to US. So initially some of the kind of big global player brands and players like starbucks and uh, disney for example then amazon uh facebook then floated i took a position in facebook um and then built out from there and as i got more confident um i, I sort of built the a more of a more of a view of what kind of allocation i wanted as well okay I'm, I'm basically just going to ask you to brag a bit now, but would you mind, talk, <laughs> would you mind talking about your, your actual returns that you've had? You don't need to give any, obviously just percentages are fine, but in terms of how it's gone since you started 10 years ago, because looking at your, well, looking at your Twitter profile, you, your, your returns are absolutely staggering, to be honest. Yes, no, thank you. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really, it's really interesting because my expectations when I set out were, re, were, I, I wanted to kind of, I knew the long term, the long term performance of the market, like the S&P is like, what, 9% or 8 or 9%. So I, I was like, okay, I want to beat that in the long term. So if I get a CAGR of 10, 11% a year, then, then, then I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with that. And I've got kind of spreadsheets that I kind of model, okay, what would that, if I keep on dripping in each year and I get that kind of return, what does it, what does it give me over a 20 year period? But I've just, I don't know, I've been partly, partly I've, I've been lucky. Um, but partly it's been good choices because you have to actually be in the game to, 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 to win. Um, I've, you know, my gains have been way ahead of that. So I, I don't know what my CAGA in the last six, seven years would be, but certainly the last few years, it's been in the 20s plus percent. And, and, and in the last, last year was, was, was by far as it was, you know, I think you were talking in one of your Christmas podcasts, you had a great year as well, but it, mm. you know, it got into, it got into three figures. So, you know, a hundred percent. And, uh, and within there, there are, there are some really, you know, there are some 20, 15 times and 20 times. And then the one that sticks out, um, that uh, which is tesla which i think i'm at 85 86 times now um so yeah right. i mean i'm i'm 
it's not bad. So I've, I've got about 55, 60 positions and I think about 30, 35 of them are at, at least doubles. And then there's several kind of five, six times. And, and then I think my top, so, you know, maybe I've got eight or nine that are 10 times ish. So it's, um, yeah, no, it's been good. It's been good, but I'm a very, I have a very, very kind of long-term perspective. I, I hate selling, uh, but I think that, and I'm scared of selling and I think that's helped me. And, and the other thing is it's, and this is probably not healthy because I, you know, I know you're quite rigorous around, um, you know, valuation, but I form an emotional attachment <laughs> to some of my shares. You know, it's, it's, I, I like being part of the story. So I like being a, a, I know I'm a teeny, teeny, tiny owner, but I like, I like that. And I don't want to walk, if I believe in the company, I don't want to walk away from that. And I, I like getting involved with the products and services that uh, my shares offer. So, you know, Apple was, was the first example. Tesla, you know, I've had a Tesla Model S for four or five years. I'm a, I'm a super fan there as well. And, and many of the others. Yeah, so it's been a nice, it's been a nice journey. So do you want to just talk in a, a bit of detail about what it is you actually look for? Because you're obviously, oh yeah, I think, what did you say, like 35 doubles, 10, 10 baggers and an 85 bagger. That's obviously, it's not just luck, is it? There must be something about the companies you're identifying that seems to be working. Yeah, I mean, the way, the way, the way I structure, probably the best way to describe it is, is, is to, to think about allocation, actually, and how I like to um split my portfolio so i've got i'd say 50 percent of what i aim for and this isn't what i have but what i aim for are 50 percent of my portfolio I, I aim for the kind of i call them ballast stocks so you know stocks that give stability and heft but still but still can grow and compound um over a long period of time so these are kind of foundation, solid, high cash generative, global brand, world beaters. The, uh, you know, I characterize the FANG stocks here. I'd characterize companies like Unilever, Diageo, Starbucks, these kind of, you know, big, you know, some of them who pay dividends as well. So that gives, that gives my portfolio heft. And, and with those, if you think about it, some companies transition from growth stocks to kind of those more solid stocks. I mean, so a company like Microsoft, is that a growth stock or is it like a, um, a ballast kind of heft stock? It's probably somewhere in between because it's, it's still growing torridly. Then, then I aim for about 45%. And that's, this is probably where most of my focus goes because I, I think with those global brands, you can kind of forget about them and just leave them there for 20 years. The um, 45% is in growth stock. So these are kind of companies that operate in, 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 in big kind of secular trends that are defining our economy and the way we live day to day. So in e-com, in, 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 in software as a service, advertising, you know, up and coming brands, disruptors, but ones that are building scale, they're not tiny. So, you know, this is, you know, the Teslas, the, uh, the e-com space, obviously you've got Amazon, but I've got Mercado Libre's been, I think my second best winner, Sea uh, Limited in the Southeast Asia, but then uh, some of the advertising plays, uh, Pinterest, uh, Shopify, Etsy, these kind of companies. So that's where that's where most of my focus goes, and that's probably I aim for about forty-five percent of the focus, and that's probably where I've had the most 
success. And then I, I try and put, say, three to 5% in what I call moonshot. So these are kind of small cap, early stage, and who knows if it will come off. But if it, you know, if, if it doesn't come off, it's 5%, um, and it's not going to damage my overall portfolio. So I've got four or five positions there. Um, and, you know, again, I'd, I'd say a few of the big positions I've got. So Mercado Libre, which is my third biggest position now and growing still. Um, when I bought that, I, I, you know, I considered it a moonshot, quite frankly. It was a small emerging Latin American econ play. And now it's grown to be, you know, quite a substantial uh, position in my portfolio, six or seven percent. So, so that, yeah, it's very US weighted uh, rather than UK, I think. I think um, the nature of business, you know, I think the US companies in the US are the ones that are leading the equivalent of, of, of whatever our equivalent of the industrial revolution is. But for now, I don't know what we're calling it, technology revolution or information revolution. So, so I am heavily, you know, 80, 85 percent weighted US. Uh, but that, that tends to be my approach and, and the companies that I look to look for. But but. But brand, brand and business model is, is, is really important in that, in that kind of middle growth area. So, so I love companies like Peloton, for example, that you know, announced results last night. I know you guys have spoken about that one as well. Yeah, so do you want to, I may as well actually skip to it because that was, I think that was one of the listener questions, wasn't it? It was how are you enjoying your Peloton and do you think that home fitness is here to stay then in a post-COVID world? Uh, yes, I love it. I absolutely love it. So I got it at the beginning of January and it's a beautiful bit of kit. It's, 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 it reminds me a bit of when I was first got kind of Apple, new Apple, shiny Apple products. So it's, have you, have you used one or, or do you ever do spinning, Sam? I haven't have used, I've got a rowing machine and that's it. Okay. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's such a smart bit of kit. So obviously you've got this big, um, you've got this big screen, you've got this speaker at the top of the screen that went at full, full power. It's like you're in a gym. And then the way spinning works is you increase resistance, you know, so, but what this does is that the instructor will say, okay, move your resistance up 10 points and it will do it automatically. So it will actually, and it will measure your heartbeat. So I think it's, I think, yes, I, I do think it is here to stay post COVID because I think they've, they've got something there. In they've almost got a bit of a cult following in terms of, you know, the, the business model is great. You spend quite a lot on the kit and it's a bit of a razor and blades, you know, 30, 40 pounds a month ish, but it's got a kind of a cult appeal and they're very, very clever the way they use music. And the way they team up, they've teamed up with Beyonce, they've done a Beatles kind of feature. So I think it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant product. And I think it's a great company. And I think they're right at the beginning. You know, they only sell three products, two bikes and a, and, and a tread. Um, they're only in three, uh, four markets. Um, and the tread isn't even out really in the US and, and the, 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 the addressable market for treads is, is two or three times the, the, the market for bikes. So yeah, I love it and I, I'd recommend it. And it's, 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 it's got very, very high retention rate for those who, who buy into it as well. I think your opinion of the company has changed since you became an owner of the product. Yeah, yes, it has. I mean, I think I, I actually, you know, if we look at, um, if we go back a year, it's a company I ridiculed. I don't know if you, I don't know if you remember the ad campaign they ran in December of 2019, 
where where this guy did you see that a guy gifted i've not his... seen the ad but i know they had some blowback for it oh my goodness it was i mean it was it was awful and uh you know they were called out for being out of touch and sexist and i think they lost 1.5 billion off their market cap but um so i thought who's gonna pay that much for a for, for two you know two grand for a bike and then 40 quid a month but then 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 somehow they they, they turned it round and uh you know they sort of put their hands up and you know i don't know what changes they made in their kind of marketing team but they just all of a sudden made it a very appealing i think their instructors their instructors are absolutely brilliant um almost like celebrities and uh yeah i i i went from sort of thinking why would you to be in a, a bit of a super fan but i do have a tendency with that's a bit dangerous because i can get a bit sucked in and that that removes a bit of objectivity in a way uh from looking at my companies i, I get emotionally attached mm. no, I, I think i'm a bit similar to you. I, I, I did used to ridicule it um okay now I, I completely get it i completely get why people like it as a business my only issue is the the amount the size the um the amount it's gone up by since i was yes. ridiculing it so if i'd realized earlier i think i think i would have brought bought it but i think, well, I, think yeah, like I missed that's... that one a bit now <laughs> Well, you, you know, you say that, but I think that's been thinking you've missed the boat is one of the biggest things I've learned to be cautious on. You know, um, I think when I when I bought, um, I had exactly that same emotion when I first bought Amazon. Okay, so I bought I bought Amazon. It was about two hundred and fifty dollars, and you know that was in. That was in about 2012 or so, and it had already it had already run up about 70 or 80 times from the late 90s when it was the world's biggest bookstore. Yeah, mm. and I was like, well, I've I've missed the boat, haven't I? It, you know, I think it was like 150 billion uh, market cap, mm. <laughs> and and I I, I I I was like, I always was putting off buying it, and I thought, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna put a little bit in there, and then since then, it's 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 um. You know, that's another. That's been another kind of ten, you know, eleven x for me, in in seven or eight years. It's like one point seven trillion now. So I think you say you say that you might have missed the boat on Peloton. I think it's like forty forty five. But I think it's with with the runway it's got. There's no reason why in say two or three years it couldn't be a, you know, one hundred fifty two hundred billion uh, business if they carry on and they can expand geographically in the range. Uh, and keep the sort of torrid growth they're seeing, then then I think that's possible. I really do. No, I, I do completely. I completely understand. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It is a business I've got a lot of a lot of respect mm -hmm. for. Um, yeah. I think a lot of it with Peloton as well is I think only like is it like twenty percent of the revenue at the minute is coming from the actual software sales. So much of it is still the actual yes. devices, and it's if they can get that transition to the higher grossing software, um, absolutely, the numbers do. They they soon start to make sense. I do. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, do you find then that pretty much all your focus is now on the US, or do you look at the UK at all, or is it just a lot? It's it's a lot. I think you know. I explained the I explained the reasons why earlier. It's where all the all, all the action is, and not just it's not it's not really necessarily about the US economy. It's it's it's. The U.S. stock market is also the window for 
the biggest global businesses, but also businesses in other parts of the, parts of the world, you know, Latin America, China, mm. you know, even Africa. Um, I do look at the UK. I, I, I think, you know, valuations in the UK are far more reasonable, but it's the makeup of the U stock, UK stock market is, is very, very different, isn't it? I mean, there's some brilliant businesses in the UK, but they tend to be more uh, traditional in a way. So sort of solid, reliable, uh, local or global businesses, very great cash flow and and brilliant, actually very attractive for income and, and dividends. Um, you know, so, so so obviously the Unilevers, Diageo, I'm building a position up in. But then, you know, a lot of the other segments, supermarkets, that's a very, very difficult segment. It's so competitive. The margins are so low. You've got oil companies, mining. So these are, they're, they're, they're slightly kind of old economy products. So I would expect I'll own more and more as I grow older. I do have a couple of growth stocks. I have got, I've got Fever Tree. I think you were talking about that we last have, week, yeah. the week before. So I've had Fever Tree for for uh, um, for a few years as as an example, and I've got a few dividend plays here and there as well. But um, but it's not it's not for me. It's just not as dynamic or exciting. Uh, in terms of growth, in my, that's my opinion. I mean, I don't know. What 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 do you think? What's your perspective on it? I I, I generally agree. Um, it's something John talks about quite a bit. Or he, he does say we just. I think what's really lacking in the UK market is we don't really have a, like a technology. We don't really have much of a technology focus. Like if you look at the actual tech companies, there's not. Yeah. There's not. You, you could you could run through the list and like you could without without even looking at it, you could probably name most of the ones on it that fall into the category. I think there are some very good companies on there and I think there are some yes. valuations are particularly quite attractive. Um, yes. I think with the US, it's, it is generally better companies, I think. Um, yeah. But the, the problem the problem I have with it now is just the valuations. So many people have realized that the valuations are just so much larger than they were. I mean, if you, if yes. you remember like two or three years ago, some of the businesses... Some some really great businesses were trading at valuations that, in hindsight, were really really inexpensive. And yeah. I think people have realised just how valuable some of these businesses are. And I think I do think in the UK there's a few businesses like that where if they were in the UK in the US they would have a much higher multiple. So one that I like a lot is Money Supermarket, and I it's, yes. it's got about a four percent dividend. I think. It's on a normalized price to earnings. I can't remember off the top of my head. It's I'd say somewhere between 13 and 17. And the business has say doubled in the last five years. Mm. And or maybe it's somewhere between 50 and 100 percent growth in the last five years. And I think if you if you looked at that and what it would be trading for in the US, it wouldn't, it would maybe be more like 13, 17 times sales yes. rather than profit. So yeah, I think there are some very, very good companies in there, but there there's are. also a lot of average companies. I agree. And I think, you know, I think the I think there are some key structural factors that that, that are driving that at the moment. So I think in the UK, the market's been a bit beaten down by by un Brexit and uncertain, you know, uncertainty around that. Um, you know, whereas if you look at in the US, I completely agree with you. Valuations are, are massively lofty, but there's some there's some there's some huge um, triggers for that at the moment. If you look at all the stimulus that the government is, you know, you know pe giving people kind of checks in terms of stimulus, I think it was $1,200 or what have you per family or what have you. And if you look at the 
the penetration and awareness of stock market investing you know the barriers to investing are so much lower you know the whole robin hood culture mm. so that's that's far more developed in the us and you know quite frankly there's um there's nowhere else to put there's nowhere else that attractive to invest money at the moment with interest rates so low as well so i think there are a number of factors kind of bubbling up together that are, that are influencing in the US. I think we've got a far, I think it's, I think it's a bit of a challenge in the UK actually. Our culture of um, talking about shares and stocks um, is far less developed and, you know, almost verges on taboo. And, you know, if I think of people my age and my friends, we don't, it's not something that people are quite have a bit more scared to get involved and take that step in this country. Um, so, you know, in that sense, I think it's great that, you know, there are there are podcasts like this to start giving people information and and, and, and uh, allowing people to build confidence to, to, to give it a go. Yeah, that, that was actually one of the reasons we did it as well, because I actually listen to quite a lot of podcasts myself. I probably listen to maybe yes. 10, 10 or 15 hours of podcasts a week. And for the US ones, there's some really, really good podcasts. There's so mm. many podcasts that you, you're just not going to have enough hours to listen to them all but for the yes. uk i'm probably only aware of one podcast that i think is really really good for the uk and that was um justin to investors chronicle the alpha podcast i do once a week um i i've subscribed to it but i don't i don't listen to it to be honest because i'm i'm like you i, I listen to a lot of the us ones and you sort of run out of time don't you you do yeah but there's <laughs> they so they do I think they must be pumping out podcasts every like two or three days, but once a week they do one called the Alpha Podcast. And there's an analyst on okay. there called Phil Oakley who's who's on it most weeks, and he's okay. very very good. And um, so okay. I would actually, if you, if anyone's looking for a UK focused podcast other than mm-hmm. ours, I would recommend that one actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's got a book as well, but I've not read that. Um, yes. So if we go back to Tesla, which you mentioned your 85x returns on. Yeah. Just talk about what it's actually been like to hold a stock over such a long time period as it's gone up 85x. Because there's so many people that they say, oh, well, of course, they maybe say, of course, you've got good returns. You've, you've had an 85x on Tesla. But then for, using me as an example, there's no way I'd have held on to Tesla as an 85x. I would have I, I would have sold it. At some Why point not? The, that would be my... Probably my conviction level of, with the company. There are some companies where I think I could hold on for an 85X, okay. but Tesla just isn't one of them. Mm-hmm. But I'm just wondering what, what yeah. it's been like, because you might feel completely differently once it's up 85X, because you've said now sure. it, it makes up over 20% of your portfolio. So what's that been yeah. like, and how do you feel about the allocation now? <laughs> it's, it's It's been a very interesting journey. I mean, I'm very comfortable with it, um, because for two two reasons firstly and, and foremost i think it's earned its place to be there so i didn't i didn't put a disproportionate i didn't invest a disproportionate amount in relatively uh, relative to other positions in fact you know less than i would tend to now and um i actually you know i'd say one of my biggest mistakes has been with tesla and i learned a lesson early on in that when it was because it was quite early on in my active investing career I it ran up it ran up about three times it, you know I got I was I was on 3x within about seven or eight months and I panicked because I hadn't really I wasn't used to that kind of run up so I sold um, I sold probably about half my position <laughs> um, and and then 
you know, if I look back, if I didn't sell that position, <laughs> I, it, Tesla, I think I calculated it would probably be about 40, you know, 35 to 40%. Um, so, you know, so I don't, I don't even bother calculating what it would be worth if I didn't sell that initial position. And that was a bit of a lesson for me to just let things run. Um, so it, it, hasn't, it hasn't been a straight line on Tesla. There's, there was four or five years where things were quite tentative. There was a lot of, they were, you know, they, they, weren't make, they weren't making money. They sort of hardly are now, really. And Elon Musk was saying a load of crazy stuff that was getting him in trouble. And he was smoking dope on, 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 on podcasts and stuff. And there was a lot of controversy. So it was, it was pretty flat. It wasn't going anywhere for four or, four or five years. But I guess, I, I guess in my mind, I thought, okay, I sold that initial position. My initial outlay is gone from Tesla. So I consider what I've got left there as, as, as much lower risk. So, so, you know, that's been, that's been the key sort of journey. Um, and I still believe in the story. I think, you know, three to five to 10 years, I don't know. I mean, obviously it's a huge market cap, but it is a leader in its space and it's still got a huge amount of optionality. So, you know, why can't it be a, 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 a two trillion company, a billion cap market cap company in, in say 10 years time it, or five years time, it could be. The thing that freaks me out a bit about Tesla is that a 1.1% movement, uh, either way, up or down, is equiv- it's got to that point where 1.1% movement is equivalent to my original outlay. <laughs> so, so, you know, it might go three or 4% down in a day. That's like four times my original outlay now, but I've, I've sort of got past that mentally somehow. I, I haven't, there's only been once or twice when I've trimmed a little bit just to fund some other positions, but I, I'm going to just keep it and just let it run uh, and see what happens. So I'm, I'm comfortable with it because it's earned it. That, the key thing is it's earned its position and that's what's made me comfortable. Okay. So does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So as an example, like you wouldn't start with a 20% position in Tesla now if you didn't already no, hold it. No, no, of course not. No, I would not do that. I would I wouldn't do that now, but I but I would I would hold I would hold what I have. I think I think any of my positions that are more than say four or five percent, I would less likely to I'd be less likely to be adding to the, any of those. To be honest, I'd be letting mm-hmm. them form their own deserved allocation in my portfolio. Um, but yeah, I don't spend a huge amount of time. You know, I don't I, I don't have a very sophisticated model you know I, I spoke broadly about my allocation principles earlier but i don't i don't think obsessively about well i could i could be earning a much higher return if i cut tesla in half and then i could put that in more other i don't i don't know it's i just like to hold mm-hmm. it's it's it served me really well just to hold and not try and be too clever and not not overthink it um so that's my strategy and if i'm if i'm too overweighted well the way to compensate that is to invest in other parts of the portfolio so that they become a bigger part, like lower down in the portfolio, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Have you read 100 Baggers by Chris Mayer? No, I haven't, no. Have you I've seen, heard about it. I've come across it in Twitter. A lot of people mention it. It is, it's a good book. It's, it's, it's quite an easy read as well, but you'd probably quite like that. And I think if, okay. if you read it, you'd probably find that a lot of the things he's talking about, you're actually doing without realising anyway. Um, okay. But it'd probably complement your style of investing quite well, I think. Okay. Um, what do, What do you think of that sort of style? 
of no, I, just I, leaving. No, I, I agree with it. Um, in terms of my own portfolio, I've got a few stocks myself where I wouldn't buy them at the current levels, but I don't, if I'm selling a business, I, I do think it's because it should be because something about your underlying thesis has changed yes. or if, or if you need to access the money for whatever reason, of course, um, I don't really like to sell on valuation because it's usually, I mean, Mercado Libre, that's one of my larger holdings. It's only an eight bagger for me, unfortunately, but okay. <laughs> only <laughs> it's a, it's a level How disappointing where, for you. Well, I see oh, you with goodness. the 21, 22 bagger on it and it feels a bit inadequate. But eight is brilliant. Yeah, so that, that that's at a level now where I, I wouldn't be buying it now, probably. No. But but then equally, I mean, we covered it a couple of months ago in compa- in comparisons to see, and the numbers it's putting up, they are just incredible numbers for a business that size. And as well yeah. with Mercado Libre, it's, it really has had a lot going against it in terms of like exchange rate movements and instability in the countries that it's operating in. So to put up those numbers, it, it really is incredible. So, yes. you know, I... I I, th- I think something I've maybe shifted towards it's probably only in the last few months, really. It's from, from watching all the old Berkshire Hathaway meetings, but yeah, now I, I just want, I want most of the businesses I own to be businesses that to me are just obvious, if that makes yes. sense. So there are some Absolutely. businesses where every now and then you come across it and it just, it just makes total sense. So, so an example for me would be Etsy. It's just, it just, yeah. it's just such an obviously brilliant business. Um, so I, I am comfortable holding that possibly at any valuation, really, as long as the business mm-hmm. continues to perform. And I'd put like, for example, looking at some of yours, I put Unilever and Facebook in that category. And I think when yes. you're holding businesses, you just have that higher level of conviction in and they are such quality businesses. I think it, it's a lot easier to hold on to them because if you obviously if you're holding a business, you have less conviction in and it goes up 10x. It could it could yeah. be very tempting to take that. And Yes. Yeah, it's, 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 I'm just I'm ranting a bit now, but no, no, I think I, 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 I'm, I'm completely with you. I'm completely with you. It's, it's, it's some, you know, it's sometimes, you know, it's just, it's just around holding on. Quite frankly, mm. uh, it's certainly when it becomes a bigger part, well, then it's then it's a substantial part of your your holding. Then, so you, there's no need, you know, adding uh, that really higher price. Um, of course, there's, there can still be a run up, but you're better off investing lower down in your uh, in your percentages, in, in my opinion. So, so I, I agree with you. Yeah, I think the problem as well is selling based on valuation. It's a company. Let, let, if you take a company, like, let's use Peloton as an example. You, you could look at that and come to the conclusion it's overvalued. Yes. But when it's growing at such a fantastic rate, it, give it two or three years, it could easily grow into the current valuation. And if you're selling it, yes. but you love the business and you think you're going to buy it back cheaper, you might never get that chance. Because well, exactly. It, it yeah. might just stay at the current levels or if, if the numbers carry on as they are, it's, you know, overvalued businesses, they can, they can stay like that for a long time. And then you look back a few years later and you think, well, actually, yeah. knowing what was going to happen, it, it wasn't that bad a valuation anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, the risk is you never buy it because you're way. That, that, that it's another it's another area in which there's lots of rhetoric in um, investing, isn't it? Where, you know, I'm waiting for that dip. I'm waiting for a dip. If you you know you, you can be forever wait t- trying to time that or trying to sell to buy again on a dip. I mean, I personally I think that's so so difficult. I just I just trying to avoid that. I've I've got no issue if if I've got a, a very small position and I want to build up build it up over time. I've got no issue at all with buying at all-time high prices. I, I don't wait for a dip because you don't know if, if and when that dip's ever going to come again, you know? So what would you 
how how do you start a position? Would you just say I want two percent in? I'm just going to throw it all in now, or would you stagger it, or how do you think? About oh, I that? would. I mean, it's yeah. I would. I would. I would tend to stagger it. I mean, I'm at the, I'm at the position now where, to be honest, any new entry position, it's quite hard to get to start with a, uh, you know, even a one percent position, quite frankly. But you know, the, in terms of absolute amounts, I'll be, I've, I've always been quite consistent in terms of how much I might trickle in a month or whatever. Um, so I'll start with that init initial absolute amount, and I'll look to I'll look to build that over time. Now, depending on where, depending on those three categorizations. So I think I think I uh, it's the kind of ballast. That's a terrible word, but it's the best. It's the best uh, one that I found. The kind of ballast stocks, the Unilevers, the the Fangs. The growth stocks and the moonshots. I will look to build a much for a new position. I'll look to to build a much bigger position in you know maybe try and get to one or two percent um, for a for a kind of foundation stock. Maybe a one percent uh, for a growth stock, and 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 then for a moonshot it'll be tiny. It'll be like a quarter of a percent of of the portfolio. And then if it if it comes off, then I'll start adding a bit more. But yeah, there's there's once in a while I'll, I'll, I'll go for it a little bit you know so i think you know peloton is probably the biggest example last year where i admit towards the end of last year i thought yeah i'm gonna go for this one and then i'll, I'll put i'll put in i think i put in say one one and a half percent which was which was quite substantial uh to start with but in general it'll be a quarter to to one percent and I'll, I'll sort of build up as the story builds essentially yeah okay. what do you think about and i saw you actually talking to someone about this on twitter recently but what do you think of diversification and how it can impact returns so you've got the issue on the one hand where if you've got too many stocks you can you can become an index fund and then if you're too concentrated whilst it works well on the way up it can also work quite yeah. badly on the way down so it's balancing that and as well your top 10 stocks make up 62 percent of your portfolio but yeah. you've got 60 stocks in total so i was just wondering yes. what your th thoughts are on diversification versus concentration yeah um well i think you you, you diversify diversify to the extent that you're comfortable and there's no right or wrong answer and everyone's got their unique dna in terms of how many positions they own so i like i like having a lot of positions um it gives me it gives me security and comfort and at the end of the day i am concentrated in in those kind of key secular trend kind of areas you know the e-com advertising i don't have any i don't my my portfolio doesn't mimic the market in any way i've got no i've got no oil or natural resources a minimum amount of healthcare no banks no supermarkets so i'm missing out on some huge areas arguably safe cash generative but not growth areas so i i'm pretty i probably would like to bring that level down but i i once i you know, a lot of those those positions at the that at the tail end are quite experimental and moonshotty, if that's a verb. Mm. So I'm looking to see how they play out. The the reason I've got so many is that I'm I'm sort of investing or betting on them being the potential Mercado Libres of the future. So it hasn't. I don't feel it hasn't held me back. I was still able to get a, you know, hundred and 101% return next year, even with 55, 60 positions. Uh, of course, I could have doubled down and put it all in Tesla. And I think Tesla went up, what was it, five or six X last year. 
and you know made a mint but I wouldn't have been comfortable with that and it wouldn't have been fun because it's not just about and I think it's the same for you Sam tell me if I'm wrong it's it's this hobby as well you know yeah definitely <laughs> it's, I, it, it's 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 not just about it's not just about uh, wealth building it's it's a hobby I enjoy it it's like a side hustle it's like you know people are into sport people are into playing golf this is this is this you know one of my equivalents so uh yes if you're if you're over diverse diversified in terms of segments i can get how it can mimic uh fun but if you've got some some themes and some strategies within it you can comfortably outperform i think um have you come across this concept of the gardener kretzman continuum i have yeah yeah no, I, I, yeah, I like, yeah yeah i don't know if you've covered that in your podcast we haven't so, so do you want to just yeah it it's yeah it's david gardner who's who I'm, I'm a very big fan of so he's the, sort of one of the co-founders of the motley fool who i know you you've, you've spoken about before and david kretzman's one of the writers or the analysts and they came up with this 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 score which is basically to say um if you look at the number of stocks you own and you divide them by your age you get you get a score which is the gardener kretzman's your your own personal gardener kretzman score so for example if you're 25 um years old and you own 50 stocks your score would be two for example and 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 they kind of say if you want to be balanced relative your age in terms of risk reward you should try and aim for around one if you've got more than one if your score's higher than one then you're probably you're possibly a bit over diversified if you're less then you might be have you know under diversified a bit more risk so i think that's quite a nice guide um yeah i'm about 1.2 on that dimension and and i'm i'm sort of happy happy to do happy to be at that sort of level do, do you know what level you would be at sam for that probably about 0.6 actually <laughs> you're bold you're bold well it's it's it's, it's not that's good no but that's true. that's that again is your you know that's your your own special source and dna right in in, in how you do it and that's perfectly fine as well yeah i mean to be honest I, there's there's 30 or 40 companies i could i could come up with a list where i'd love to own them it's just mm. it's just getting them at the right moment so i get i guess where the moment's been there i've only ended up going in on a few of them and luckily they've, they've done they've done very well for me so far but yeah there, there, there are a number of companies it's it's certainly not a deliberate thing and there's there's a if we got another march like event and i had the cash available there's a number of companies where or March 2020 like event and I had the cash available there's a number of companies where I'd love to just pile into those yeah what what would be do you have a clear view of where you would start on that in terms of what you would get into you know three or four ones that you would don't own but uh, would be higher on your watch list uh, or is that too <laughs> no no it's, so, so match group would be one actually um, oh yeah I think that's I've got match yeah a really impressive business yeah um yeah. Peloton probably would would actually be another. Um, yeah. C Limited that'd be probably yeah. third. I'll see if I can think of a fourth. Very good. There will there will be a fourth. I'm just trying. To think. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, well, there are three very very good ones that I've owned for um, a few years. So so yeah, no, very good. But then there's a few where I feel like now there's some really good. They're not. They're probably not likely to generate the same sorts of returns, but I think whilst we have talked about US valuations being so high, there's some of the larger US companies, the valuations seem quite low in comparison. So like when you look at Facebook, 
at yeah. a, a PE of 28 and it's still growing revenue at 30% a year. And even companies like Disney, where it's, it's probably a normalized PE of about 30, but then if you look at what Disney Plus could actually be and it's already got 80 million subscribers, that seems incredibly cheap. So th those are probably two, I, I, I guess those are two that I'd probably be more likely to initiate a position in sooner rather than later because I do think they're at such attractive levels. So. Yeah. I guess I guess if you follow enough stocks for long enough, you will get your chance with all of them yes. at some point. No, absolutely. Yeah. Well, all great, all great examples. And I agree, some of those, they almost in in, in context, they feel slightly undervalued, don't they? The face Facebook certainly, um, you know, even Amazon with their results uh last week, uh Disney for sure. You, you can see quite a bit of room to grow in 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 what are considered very solid, stable, um, stable uh, stocks, right? Yeah. So yeah. you've hinted at it a bit with the uh, Gardner Kretzmann continuum, but what <laughs> what what resources do you use for investing and finding stocks? And that can be they can be free or paid. They could be audio or websites, whatever you want. Sure. So yeah, I mean, Motley Fool are certainly a, a, a kind of service that I have taken advantage of. So I have been. Uh, a member of some of their paid services like uh, which again I think you've mentioned before as well stock advisor and yeah. uh, and rule breakers as well rule breakers is probably the most um, attractive one and, and which gave me the confidence to invest in some of the more um, you know the Mercado Libres and, and even Tesla a lot of the insight on Tesla I would have got from uh, Motley Fool. Um, they've also, and, and again, I think you've you've mentioned some great podcasts that they have as well. So, Motley Fool Money, Market Foolery, Rule Breaker Investing. You just learn a lot, and there's a lot of insight in companies and in terms of the coverage. There's another service called Seven Investing. I don't know if you've come across that one. I have, yeah. No, yeah. yeah. I, I followed. I think. I followed most of their analysts when they were still at the full, actually. So yeah, which is also very, very good. Um, I mean, they, they they go even deeper than the Motley Fool in terms of analysis and a lot of great, um, you know, great podcasts as well. It, too much, too much content to consume, quite frankly. Mm. Um, over and above that, then, um, you know, some of the apps for, for getting kind of just kind of a broader suite of articles and 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 information and technical information. Yeah, you know, I, I, I really enjoy Yahoo Yahoo Finance. Tip ranks, I think, is good for going a bit deeper on on fundamentals. Um, and then I like I like reading a lot of magazines just for business insights. So Fortune magazine, I get a lot of good ideas and insights from from there. But I try and kind of join dots and triangulate across many many sources to and you know obviously go to the company in question's website and build build a build a point of view and then more recently more in especially in the second half of late year uh, second half of last year and during lockdown you know twitter's been a big a big source mm. as well uh, so i only set up my kind of investing account so in the second half of last year and i've and, and it's incredible what you can there's a lot you have to be careful and i'm sure you found this there's a lot of chest beating and a lot of bluster and there's a lot of traders on there but i've really but you can learn a lot people do some great analyses and you know i've also made a few friends on there especially some 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 uk based uh, guys as well so it's good i think I've I've seen your TED talk, Sam, where you talk about yeah. having friends friends to talk to, um, and having you know to bounce ideas off. And there's 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 a number of um, 
Brit investors, like-minded, and and it's been great. I, I've never met these people or anything, but we're you know quite like-minded, and you sort of bounce things off each other, and and you share your, each other's progress, and it's you know it's it, this is going to sound um this is going to sound strange, but it's almost especially during lockdown, it's almost been a good thing for my mental health as much as anything, because it's given another outlet for connection and for camaraderie, uh, to 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 connect with some some people on Twitter. So. That's those are the sort of mix of sources I get. I don't read. I know you're you're a very avid reader. I don't read a lot. Uh, I've got I've got children, and I, I, you know that that kind of means I don't have a lot of time. But I I am finishing reading the Psychology of uh, Money, which is by Morgan Housel, which is really really good. Yeah, I enjoyed um, that one. Yeah, it's great. But yeah, those would be my main sources. I would say. What are the, some of the best accounts then that you'd recommend following on Twitter? Well, um, there, I mean, there, there, there are a lot of good ones, and they're they're, they're easy they're easy to find. The one actually, the one the one source to to find people to follow. Have you heard of this? It's an account called Inverteer blog. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. What it is, it's really interesting. Well, this this person, uh, this this person has set up basically a portfolio. What he does, he he gets the top. If if you go to his profile, invertier.blog, there's a link, and on that link, what he's done, he's he kind of sources the top, the most followed fintwit, you know, financial Twitter people who are followed on mm -hmm. Twitter, and he he's built a portfolio of their top twenty five. Um, positions across that you know and there's a lot of overlap as you might imagine and he he measures the progress of that versus um the s p and it's quite fascinating actually to see the lot the the overlap so if you but if you go on there you can see some of the big names that have got big followings um who, who are well known i think you've spoken about some of them like puru saxena for example um so you know for, for in terms of investors i'd recommend going to that and then playing around and seeing which which kind of fit your style well, i think there are some there are some other guys brian feraldi have you come across He's fantastic, him yeah he, yeah who just gives loads of really good insights beth kindig she's very um, good as well she's very I'm probably good. gonna say this about all of them but yeah, but then, but then the other thing that I'd given that this is a, a kind of a, a British podcast, you know, I'd, I would shout out to some of the some of the British and Irish uh, brigade that's there as well, and and people that I've, you know, built good little Twitter friendships with. So a, a guy called Arsalan, a guy called Professor ninety five Professor ninety five of data science. There's uh, Adventures in Financial Independence. If you went to my, there, there's a Portuguese guy called Duarte, who's brilliant. He does these really succinct one-page summaries of, of a kind of strategic rationale for buying stocks. Um, that is just brilliant. So I've got very aligned kind of thinking with him. So if you if you were to go to my profile, you'd see some of these guys that I follow. But I like this this kind of British brigade. We're kind of a little mini sort of friendship circle and <laughs> they might not think so you follow but, uh, investment talk what's that sorry there's a guy called him there's a scottish investment guy talk. yeah two k's yes yeah. yes yes that's another one yes and then born investor irish born investor who's quite entertaining as well so yeah there's quite there's you, you, you can build connections you learn different approaches uh, and it's and it's entertain it's entertainment i think as well but you have to be careful as well 
not you know to make your own decisions and not to get sucked in by it too much I think I'll, I'll probably, once this is done, I'll probably actually have to go down your follow list and see which ones I'm not following. <laughs> do, you use, do you use it a lot yourself? Or I do, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I use it quite a lot now. I, I just think it's brilliant. Like you say, some of the stuff you can get yeah. on there and that they're putting out for free. I, would, I'd, yes. I, I, think, I think when you've been on there a while and you've refined who you're following, I think, I think it's unbelievably useful. I think the issue is, like you say, just making sure you follow the right people. But I'd, I'd happily, no, exactly. I'd ha- probably happily pay quite a lot a month just to subscribe to my own. Yeah, no, I agree. If, if Twitter started charging, I, I probably would pay for it. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, in fact, there's this guy called Chris Camillo. Have you come across him? I haven't, no. So he, he, he has a YouTube channel as well called Dumb Money. But this guy has made his, has made a career and a mint from, he picks up all of, all of his insight on um, stocks and secular trends and what the hot new investments are going to be purely from social listening. So he's built actually a tech platform that that I think he's he sort of sold it and he but he uses it fundamentally to to develop his theses in terms of what brands and what businesses is there a lot of noise in in, in social media around and he's got kind of some algorithms that feed his investment choices and he's been incredibly successful. If you if you look at some of the money he's made that's the gains he it's like different different planet. So it's 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 very interesting uh, in terms of the insights on trends that you get from it. What do you wish that you knew when you started investing that you know now? So like, what advice would you give yourself when you were starting out? Well, I would, I mean, the key, the key things I would tell myself, I mean, firstly, just to start earlier, to take those first steps and, 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 and not be shy. And I'm, I'm, I'm very envious of you uh, <laughs> with your age, because you've just got such a long runway, but I've spoken to some, I've got some nephews who are quite fresh out of university and, they're they're starting their journey and they're sort of 23 24 one's really into crypto the other one's getting into sort of shares and it's brilliant because they'll learn and you know i just wish i'd started earlier and you know that's that's something i'm trying to institute into my children as well actually so from the age of six when it's their birthday i ask them to choose a company they like and then um i uh they i buy it for them in their junior isa and, and, and I'm just going to leave it till they're 18. So I, I sort of want to educate them as well. And they've made some good picks, actually. How old are they now? now um, they're, they're, they're like seven, nine and uh, 11. And they've and it's companies that they, it's things that they use. But, you know, one of my children has, has got Roku because we have Roku system and they're four, four times on Roku. Um, to get them on the podcast. Yeah, I know. They've got Disney. They've got they've got Zoom because, you know, all their lessons starting with Zoom and all the rest of it. Apple. So um, Netflix. I mean, the first purchase was Netflix for my oldest. And that's six times since he chose that five or six years ago. So, yeah, I think that would be the first thing. Start earlier. And then the second thing, and we've mentioned it, is don't if you really believe in a winning in a business and its future, don't don't fret too much about valuation just to take that starter position so that 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 would be because otherwise you'll always be waiting you know um so mm-hmm. that that was a definitely like companies like apple and amazon i could and should have been in there way way before um i was and you know that in a way that was a that was a platform to start earlier on tesla 
given the learning that I had on on some of those businesses. I think looking back on mistakes and stuff, and I think I think what's frustrating. It's easy to look back and say, "Oh well, I should have bought this when it was this price." But I think when it really is a mistake is when it's something where it's it's similar to what you're already doing. And it's within your ability to understand it, if that makes sense. Because there's some stuff where like someone could do well on a pharmaceutical stock, and I'm not going to think, "Well, I, sh- I should have known that," because I just I, I don't have the yeah. toolkit to analyze pharmaceutical companies and the product line and stuff. But then, yeah, so, something something like. Like like a Peloton, if if I'd looked at it a bit less cynically at the start, I probably would have. Yeah. I probably would have realized. So that that's something where it's a mistake. Whereas a pharmaceutical company just wouldn't be in the same bucket. Yes. Well, I think I think that's right. Especially if you if you understand the company and if it's the sort of company or brand that actually you you use every day. You know. <laughs> you know some 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 of these some of the businesses that have done so well, the Netflix. The, the Amazons, the Apples, um, the Facebooks, they're, they're, in retrospect, they're, they're, they're companies and brands that have just infiltrated our everyday lives. You know, we use them on a daily basis. So sometimes it's just not about not overthinking it, really, and, 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 and being able to see ahead. What are the biggest mistakes that you've made then in investing? I, I, to be honest, I think I've, I've mentioned them. I think, uh, you know, the biggest one was, was probably... Tesla, you know, is, is my also my biggest success. So, you know, selling a big portion too early on, uh, you know, even 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 Unilever, which is my number two, I I sold quite a bit early on, and I wish I wish I didn't. So, it's mainly been around selling too early. There are some companies I've held on to too long. Uh, some of the British companies that I, I used to hold, like Burberry, for example, I held I've, I held for many many years, and it. I don't own it now. I, I just sort of lost. Eventually, you have to, you know, I, I, it doesn't happen often, but I lose patience and I'll, I'll exit. And I'll probably let that one run a bit too, a bit too long. When you say example. lose patience, is that is that based on what the share price is doing or what the business is doing? A little bit of both, you know. Um, you know, in that example, you kind of believe in the... You believe in the brand, it's great management, um, great international expansion at the time. But then the, the things in the long term, the things go hand in hand, right? So if the company's not executing uh, consistently enough, then they, it just, you know, from a share price point of view, it does start to get, you lose, you lose a bit of belief. And you know, I still made a gain on, on, on Burberry, but I, I had a decent sized position and I, I held it too long and it just didn't, I, it, it didn't feel good. I didn't, um, I wasn't satisfied with holding it anymore, shall I say, yeah. And I, d- I don't know how it's doing now. I don't know if it's one you, you've looked at. No, we, we um, have actually, we, we quite liked it, but we've, we've only looked at it okay. recently. Um, right yeah no i had it yeah i had it for about seven or seven years or so yeah i had it for seven years or so but maybe it was up and down and i don't know my, my gain and exit in the end uh, maybe i was up 20 30 percent i don't know but yeah was your conclusion that that's a good one going more forward? of a value right value, but it okay. just looked quite reasonable for for, yeah. for what you say is like it is a high quality business and then you've got yeah in this we've only actually looked at it since um since um since covid so it's it's still down about a third off from where it was so it's it's more if, if the international travel comes back yeah it's just yeah. getting back to where it was that's that's what we quite liked about it as, sure. as to whether we'd feel the same 
once we're back into a normal situation. I don't know, but it looked quite reasonable when we looked at it a few months ago. But what do you, I think you've already hinted at this a bit, but what are your thoughts on rebalancing? Yeah, I think, I think it's important, but I'm not over obsessed with it. So I aim for this kind of 50, 45, five, as I said, kind of solid growth and then moonshot. I'm probably at the moment, I'm not in that at all. I'm more probably more like 40, 40, 55 or 57, three or something like that. So what that, what that will cause me to do is build up. I'll, 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 I'll rebalance through adding where I feel I'm a bit over. So I'm probably, I, you know, even though I'm growth oriented, I do like dividends as well. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Unilever has taught me that having, you know, having held that for so long. So I'm probably, I'm building up a few more sort of dividend positions at the moment. Um, so I'll probably just do it that way, but, and, 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 and balance over time through what I contribute. That's how I'll do it. Not by reallocation. What are your yeah. thoughts on adding to existing positions in terms of adding to winners and adding to losers? Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of adding on the way up and adding to to winners. So I've got a much bigger tendency to do that than adding to adding to losers. Uh, you, you know, I think if it's a if it's a company that I really, it depends what you mean. You know, what's your time frame for losers? You know, you can have you can have something that's not an all time high. It might be twenty percent off its high, um, but if if I still believe in it. Um, I will buy, buy, but you know, by definition, I don't think I've got any losers because if it, if it, if it's a loser, it shouldn't be in my portfolio. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it, it might yeah. be. Yeah. It might like Zoom is a good example. Um, you know, that's a bit. That that's been my luckiest purchase, I would say, because I bought that in January last year, and 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 that was you know before it before the pandemic and everything moved to Zoom. But now it's kind of so I've had a really nice return on that. Um, it's in my top 10, but it's quite depressed. Now, would I add to it now? Yeah, I probably would actually, even though it's, but, it, but I don't see it as a loser because I think it's, I think that one will still be a long-term winner. Yeah, so uh, I've got a, uh, almost like a philosophical issue with that question because if it's a losing company, if, if, if it's a cheap price or, you know, it's depressed, then I'd, I would add to it. I've got no issue because I still believe in the long-term story. Okay. What about if loser is redefined to only include stocks where you've bought it and they've gone down, so you don't have any gains on it yet? Does that change? Um, yeah, I would buy. I would buy, and there's 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 certainly some positions where I've bought at a high price and it's and it's come down, but I still carry on building. So you know, Pinterest, um, which you know obviously had the great results. I bought, and then it sort of came down a fair bit, and I bought more. Teladoc would be another one. Um, so I've, I'll, but you know, my thesis on the on the on the on why I own the stock doesn't change. So I've I've got no issue with buying on on if it's a slightly depressed price. In fact, that's that's attractive, right? So I'll I'll do it both ways. I'll do it both ways. So what I'd like to do now is just go through some of the stocks that you've got in your portfolio, and I've just got a few questions about them, if that's yeah. all right. Uh, okay. So the first one on the, that I picked out was Unilever. So it's the only UK listed stock in your top 10. So what do you actually, yeah. what, why is that and what do you like about it? 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's as, as, as I touched on earlier, it's a bit of a cheat because I started there and, and, and it's the longest held. I've had it for over 20 years. So I, I've learned a lot from it. I mean, it's, it's the ultimate lesson in compounding and it's, it's the stock that's made me love dividends. So, I mean, the yield I get now uh, 20 years later, if, if, I, if I look at that as a yield on my original investment, it's over 20%. Um, of my original investment that I get every year um, and it just the, the way I've seen that grown every every year has been fantastic so I mean I'd it's the only UK listed stock because it's the only one that's had the time to grow to get there I'd love to have more UK stocks in my top 10 they, they, they but unfortunately at the moment the US stocks a faster pace growth. The other one that I'm aiming to get into my top 10 over time would be Diageo. And it's not far off. It's it's probably about between 15 and 20, 20th in scale. But that would be another one that I've got very long-term sort of conviction in and a decent dividend, although I got it at quite a depressed price um, last year. So it's it's it'll end up being a decent dividend. So I, I would like to I think, you know, I see them as quite similar, you know, global, great mm. brands, great marketing machines. Um, they ain't going anywhere. Um, so, so yeah, that, you know, Unilever, I mean, it's, it's got, it's got one of the best kind of marketing capabilities uh, globally and one of the best uh, stable of brands. The only worry I do have about Unilever, I would say is it's, it's, the way it's keeping its growth trajectory, I mean, clearly it's got a dependence on emerging markets, but over time it's slimming its portfolio. Where, you know, mm. you think about there was the spread, there was the spreads business. I think they've announced they're going to get rid of their tea business. So they're sort of becoming a more constrained kind of business in terms of the number of categories they're operating. Now, that's a good thing because they want to focus on the growth categories, but it's, it's, I don't know, I wouldn't be surprised to see a, a split of the food and the personal care and products business at some stage. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I know they're, I know they're doing some M&A, which is good as well, but I don't know. I'm not, I'm not hundred percent convinced by their product portfolio strategy. I think if you're going to sell, you, you define the T category, you're going to sell it. Have you given up that is, it, it, it smacks a bit of, well, we've given up on tea now. So we're going to just hive it, you know, we're going to sell it off to private equity. I don't really know much about their tea business, but I do know with the spreads that spreads was spreads is a declining market. So it actually yeah. the, the whole market gets a bit smaller every year. So I don't know if that was one of the reasons why, because even if they're, I mean, you, I guess with a business like that, you could do everything right and maintain your market share and potentially even grow it. But if you are in a declining market, it's you're swimming against the tide, aren't you? Maybe you are. Well, I mean, yes, yes. To know, I would say I would, the, the other the other point of view would be you're not doing a, as a category leader you're not doing a strong enough job to keep the market modern relevant you know you 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 can you can impact the market through if you take the tea market you know one of the biggest global beverages in the world it's it's how do you 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 look at what Starbucks did to, in the coffee market right I mean when Starbucks came and they came to the UK and the idea of paying three quid for a cup of coffee was ludicrous and now it's like we take it for granted so it's also in how you as a as a brand leader reinvent and modernize and keep the category relevant I know there are big I know spreads is probably a harder one because there are big kind of health trends and all the rest of it and how people consume but it's not just about market it's about your impact in the market as well I think
might be a bit unfair. <laughs> no, that's interesting. Starbucks is an interesting example, actually, because um, I mean, my, my statistic, it's, it's, I think, I think it's something Warren Buffett was talking about last week. I listened to the 2006 Berkshire meeting, and one of the things uh-huh. he talked, he was asked a question on Coke, but he, he talked about how the at that time, and this is obviously from 2006, but the US consumption, if you looked at the US consumption of liquids, Coke was gaining market share every year. And mm-hmm. coffee was actually declining. The US people in the US, they were drinking less coffee every year, and its market share of um, beverages, I guess, was declining. Yes. But Starbucks, despite that trend, has obviously did unbelievably well in that time period. So I do get yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, I love I love Starbucks. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very happy that 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 again. That's one of those that I've, or, or, you know, obviously they've had some, uh, you know, headwinds in the last year. But I, I, I can't see that I'll ever, you know, I can't see that I'd want to sell Starbucks ever, sort of thing. You know, and it's and it's the sort of product I, I'll use a, a couple of times a week. You know, mm. uh, it's just one of those solid global players. Lots of growth in China and all the rest of it. It's, it's brilliant business. So the next one I wanted to talk about was Lemonade. So that's, for anyone who doesn't yes. know, it's, it's a US insurer that's doing the rounds. Quite People on Twitter seem to like it a lot. Um, yeah. So I've, I've not looked at it in any great detail, but my, I guess it's because of the industry it's in. So my, yeah. my issue with insur- an insurance business is it's very, very difficult to value because you could yeah. be growing as an insurance business, but you could be doing that by writing insurance at prices that will turn out to be unprofitable. And it's it's very hard to te- it's hard to differentiate good growth from bad growth, I guess. So, how do you think about yeah. that, and what do you think of Lemonade? Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 no expert on the economics of insurance, but the 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 reason that I am a big fan of Lemonade, and you know, Lemonade, I would characterise in the moonshot part of my portfolio, right? So it's it's high risk, you know, who knows? But it's it's a it's a it's a company and a brand that is trying to disrupt a very old school uh, model. Uh, If you look at traditional insurance, it's based on a bit of an adversarial relationship between company and client, you know, providers of insurance, their their goal is to try and minimize payouts to, to customers to maximize their profits. So there's an incentive to deny claims. So the way, you know, Lemonade is looking at a very, you know, they're trying to reinvent that. And so they're trying, they're doing so many innovative things. So number one, they're they're trying to create complete transparency on their their business model. So the way that the way they work is they, when you buy a policy with Lemonade, they they keep a a flat fee, 25%, and they use the rest on reinsurance and to pay claims. So they'll pay the claims from the reinsurance and from the flat fee. But then they, what they do is, um, any unclaimed premiums they give they give to charity. So and and as as your as when you buy insurance, um, if if you don't claim, then there's a portion of your premium that you you can actually choose what charity to 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 pay it to. So that so that's a very different approach with you know built on transparency. The use of technology, so they're using AI in the user experience. So it's a very very you know I mean all buying insurance can be such a pain and what they're trying to do is is simplify it so i think i think there's some statistics that both in 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 getting a policy and in getting a claim i think the record they've done is three seconds where someone got their coat stolen and they got their claim paid in 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 three seconds so it's very tech-based approach and it's they're just kind of 
challenging the conventions of of that industry they're they're a they're a b corp so a public benefit corp so they're massive appeal to kind of millennial younger uh consumer audience and they're very light on um on 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 fixed costs and staff so it was quite interesting it's worth looking at this as a story but um, I think they've got about 200 employees, this company, and the, U- the US largest insurance company is called State Farm. They've got 48,000 agents. Now, because of, because of their AI model that they use to write policies and, and, and manage the, the, the customer experience, I mean, that's a massive, huge cost that they're avoiding. And, you know, actually a couple of years ago, and it's, it's worth seeing this on, on, on YouTube or what have you, or some of the articles, they ran an attack ad against Lemonade uh, to kind of criticize that it wasn't a real person behind it and then it's all AI and do you want to um, deal with a an AI kind of bot or whatever but this you know it actually Lemonade were brilliant in terms of how they reacted they says okay State Farm so you you forked out millions of your customers premiums to attack uh, Lemonade <laughs> yeah uh, and yeah. they'll get they've got all these sort of alien and, and Lemonade actually used the State Farm ad in their they used it to kind of push their own proposition. And I think they got to a million, they, they were one of the first, they were, you know, they got to a million uh, policyholders in a kind of record time. So I think, you know, who knows? I, I, I love the fact that they're just looking at that business model, looking at the consumer pain points, and they're just trying to reinvent the whole thing. And they seem to be getting traction. Their, their MPS score, you know, net promoter score, the average, uh, you know, the highest an average U.S. insurer gets is 20 as a net promoter score, right? Lemonade net promoter score is 70. So they've got a lot of love. So they've, they've got something going there. And, and I think they're very early. They only sell pet insurance, rental. There's a lot of segments. There's a lot. They're only in the U.S., a bit in France. They've got the very, it's very, very overvalued. It's hugely overvalued. There's a lot of hype about it. It might not work, but it could be one of these that could be a big winner, I think. Does that make sense? I went on no, about no, no, that. It's, one, didn't it's, I? A really, it's a really good explanation, yeah. Um, so the next one I want to talk about was Jamia. So Jamia is actually, it's, yes. it's, it's the kind of company that I, I do like in that it's, it's obviously been, it's been described as the Amazon of Africa, um, yeah. which as, as an owner of Mercado Libre is something that, I, I yes. did take a look at it when it first IPO'd, and I have followed it ever yeah. since, really. Um, it is a stock I looked at in a fair bit of detail, but I had a few. The first issue I had was they were losing an unbelievable amount of money compared yeah. to the revenue. It was it was it was actually impressive yes. how much money they were able to lose. Um, <laughs> the other the other issue I had was um, delivery and infrastructure issues. So because of the way Africa is as a continent, it doesn't have the same level of infrastructure that we have in Europe or America yeah. or even even in Latin America that you take for granted for a business like that. So what it meant was first was that the, the biggest problem was it was what was called last mile delivery, wasn't it? Where, yes, I mean, a lot of people, they didn't even have postcodes. So that can make it incredibly difficult to actually get the stuff to them. Um, I've seen people talking a bit more about how it's now moved to more third-party selling, which is a lot more profitable. And yes. I don't know if that's coincided with it's, it's doing a lot better as a stock. Actually, I think I think the market yes. it must it must have dropped to about two hundred million or maybe even less than that. It's at it's at three or four billion last time I looked at it. It's, so it's five point five oh, point seven now. Yeah, point so <laughs> <laughs> proof. But um, yeah. I remember look. I, I I think the Jamia Pay aspect looked really interesting yeah. as well. 
Um, yeah. So yeah, so do you want to just talk a bit about why you own it and why you like it yeah. and how, how they've overcome those problems that I described? Or yeah, they, so, they seem to be. No, absolutely. So again, Jumia uh, technology fits within that moonshot. You know, it's, it's one where there's high level of uncertainty and you know it's not about the economics as they are now it's all about the future yes they are loss making and you're right a lot of the um, delivery issues infrastructure infrastructure issues are probably more tough in africa than they are in any other continent but those those issues and challenges are exactly why i love it in a way because they're trying to carve a position and a leader leadership position in a really really tough market with lots of barriers. So, and they what you know the, the, there's the two guys who own them who are well versed in ecom. I think they're ex McKinsey guys, but they are they're learning. They're, they're, they're bit by bit they're learning. They're growing. They're finding ways around. The level of misdeliveries is going down, and they're starting to build a bit of credibility and scale. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be years until they are profitable in my opinion but they've got a decent amount of backing and they you know but they they're adapting as they learn as you say they're becoming more of a third party vendor they've started partnering with big global players as a, as a as a route to market for them so they sell a lot of png products and reckit benkiza products for example and you know slowly 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 they're they're sort of getting it done so you need to for me the thesis on Jumia is around a can they overcome a very very challenging you know can they crack it in a very very challenging uh, set of economies and and uh, conditions would be would, would be the first thing but the, the the key thing is for me is the other side of the equation which is the the potential so yeah I mean I I bought it it was three at three billion market cap, so it's it's five point seven now. So I'm about eighty percent up, but it's tight. If you look at it as a, as a percentage of Amazon, and that's a stupid comparison, right? Because you know Amazon's one point seven trillion nearly. Uh, but even Mercado Libre. So if we take Mercado Libre, that's ninety three billion, right? So it's it's six percent of the market cap of Mercado Libre. It's 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 clearly very early in its in its uh, evolution but even if it becomes hard you know say they overcome these issues some of these issues and get to a sustainable delivery model even if, if it becomes half the size of Mercado Libre in say t- five or ten years time then that will be a 15 bagger just there you know and you if you if you look at the just the sheer market that the, the addressable market that it's you know you know Africa it's like one, like South America, where Mercado Libre. It's about 400 million population. Africa, 1.2 billion. So you know, Nigeria alone, 200 million population. It's going to be the. It's forecast to be the third biggest population by 2050. So if they, if they're able to make it work, um, they're they're also offering Jumia Prime, right? So so they're copying, they're copy pasting Amazon, right? Prime delivery. Even you, you get free um, viewership of Iroko TV, which is kind of a Nollywood, a Niger- this is in Nigeria, Nigerian kind of Netflix, if you like. If they can, if they can crack it on the, on the delivery and the payment size, then I think, you know, my God, even if, it, even if it gets to, say, 15 billion, so, you know, a small portion, a tiny portion of, uh, a small portion relatively of, then I'll be very happy. It'll be a really good return. So, so that's, that's my thesis there. There's a lot of risks, but I 
think it's worth a go. And if I, you know, if it doesn't come off, then um, I haven't, because it's in my moonshot part of my portfolio, I'm, I'm willing to, to take that risk. Um, you sold gone, Sam. Yeah, I, I, think I, I, you... it's, it's, I, I need to be careful of Jameer because it's the kind of company I'm aware I'm just so predisposed to liking. Um, yes. I, I did actually have quite a serious look at it when the market cap was about 400 million. Um, 400 million, my yeah. goodness. You would have done so, very well if you. I wish you'd told have... me then because you'd, be <laughs> well, but... you'd be on like a 12 or 13 bag of them. It was, in, it was at that point where it just kept, it just seemed to go down every day as well. Um, yeah. and it, it was getting my, my thesis at that point because they hadn't started the third party selling. So there was, there was a danger of them actually, I think, running out of cash, really. Um, yeah. But they were, what I liked about it was I just, my my thesis was if it, if it got to a certain point, Jamea Pay alone would be worth taking on the risk of all the rest of it. Because Jamea Pay, yes. for anyone who doesn't know, that's basically like the PayPal of Africa they're trying to turn it into. Um, yeah. But no, I, I do like what they're doing as a business. And it's it's an interesting one where I'm, I'm quite happy following it. And I don't mind paying. I, I wouldn't mind buying in at, say, a 10 billion market cap instead of five. If it yeah. looks like they're, they've overcome a lot of the issues that I was concerned about. So it's one I'm definitely following. With it's on interest. your watch list. It's on your watch list. But I do. Yeah. I go through I go through them. I go through my watch list like once a month and I've, I've just got yeah. a spreadsheet of it and I'll just, I'll go through it and I'll just see what the price has done in the past month. And then I'll just mark whether I think it's like expensive or cheap yeah. or like fairly valued. And I think mm-hmm. every single month since Jimmy has been on it, which is pretty much since it IPO'd and that, that's the valuation. I think it started at maybe like 3 billion and then went down yeah. to about 200 million. And now it's up to 5 billion every single month. Yeah. It's been marked as overvalued. So yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this is this that's that's a bit of concern because it it might just stay like that you know the nature of that sort of business you know yeah yeah i mean initially it was more overvalued in the sense that this business could go bust in the next 18 months or two years yeah and it's still whereas now it's it's now it's like they're starting to turn it around and they are starting to deliver a bit more and i'd I'd, I'd much rather pay for that kind of overvaluation Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, who knows? It's gonna. I mean, I, I'm expecting a very, very volatile ride on that one, that, but I'm I'm prepared for that because, as I yeah. said, it's it's in that part of the portfolio where yeah, I'm more sort of playing in a way. Not playing. That's not that's 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 not giving it respect because it's a, a serious company. But where I'm I'm willing to accept more volatility. Okay. So the the other stock I wanted to ask you about in your portfolio was Disney. So yeah. Um. In December, it was in your top ten, and now it seems mm-hmm. to have dropped out. So it's 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 a stock that me and John both really like, as I mentioned earlier. So yes. I was just wondering, firstly, why you like it and why you hold or held it, and why it's dropped out. Is it dropped out because you sold it, or just because something else has risen enough that that's now in the top ten instead? It's the latter. I mean, I'll never sell Disney. Uh, I just absolutely. I mean, I was talking earlier about emotional pull. I think <laughs> Disney's the ultimate for that. How can you not love Disney? It's an absolutely awesome company. Um, it's it only dropped out of the top ten because some of the players overtook it. Um, there's a lot. I've probably got about six or seven businesses competing for that top ten slot. Mm-hmm. To be honest, so no, that I haven't trimmed it, and I wouldn't dare do so. Um, I mean, it, actually, it's one of the bigger talking adding it is one of the businesses i would consider adding to because i mean if you look at the bob Iger era 
I mean, he's, he, I mean, he just played an absolute blinder, didn't he? I mean, oh, talk unbelievable. Like, you most... laughed at the perfect moment. Oh, yeah, that's that's a way <laughs> to exit, isn't it? The most attractive entertainment properties globally, not just globally, but probably in history as well. You know, Lucasfilm, Pixar, Marvel. It's a genius. And I just love what they've done with Disney+. Plus. What a pivot. What a leverage of their content. I mean, they've got they've got new new addition to Disney Plus in um, a couple of weeks. Star, have you seen that? Yeah, I've got. I've, I'm a subscriber, so I've, I, yeah. I get the emails telling me it's coming. Yeah, yeah, you know, which is which is going to add a whole load of other content. So, I absolutely love it. I think Disney Plus has got a huge runway ahead. Um, I love how they're making the original content on you know all the Mandalorian, all the the Marvel. What's the what's the one at the moment? One Division on Marvel at the moment. So there's just so much optionality, both from the content, and it's not even rolled out globally yet. And you think of the bounce back they're going to have with their parks business, which I know is a, a big profit contributor as well. So I think it's like forty percent of revenue comes yeah, from parks. Well, 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 exactly. I mean, and, those are you know, those are pre-Disney Plus statistics. So yes, no, absolutely. So, so for them, thank goodness for Disney Plus. I guess they've been a bit of a bit more stuck there, but when when things get to a degree of normality, they're just going to go from strength to strength. So I think it's, I think it's one of the best, it's, it's certainly one of my favorite uh, positions and one of my favorite companies in, in the world. Is that how you, I, th- I, I, I sense you're a massive fan as well, I, right? It's an, un, it's an unbelievable business. <laughs> I think I said, I said it a few times on the show already, but I think if you were to look at that and take Disney plus out, it's probably trading about 30 times normalized earnings. And I think that is pricey, but when it's possibly, you could make the argument that it's worth paying 30 times earnings for Disney on its own without Disney plus. So then when you throw that in, and if, even if you just start playing around with the numbers, so like 80 million yeah. subscribers now that's targeting over 200 million by 2024, if you just play around with, well, what if they get you know $10 a month for each one, how much revenue is that going to add? If yeah. how much are they going to have to spend on content? Because I don't think they need to spend that much on content because because they've got such high quality brands. You know, if they yeah. do two or three Star Wars shows a year, I'll pay full year round. It doesn't matter if they don't do anything else. So I think because of that, they they don't need to be pumping out new stuff every day like Netflix yeah, does. Yeah. And if you yeah. just start, you can just start playing around with the numbers. And even if you're quite conservative, I, I think you can you can easily get to a scenario where earnings in a few years are you know, 50 to 100% larger than they are or they are right now. And yeah, they're arguably more attractive earnings as well, because they're just so they're so low cost. And yeah, I just think it's an unbelievably good business. Um, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I love it. Have you watched Imagineering? Imagineering? No. Oh, so it's, uh, it's, what on channel Disney, is that on? it's Disney Plus. It's it's okay. So it's basically just like it's a it's a there's only done one series. It's like a six part um, it just takes you through the history of Disney and the parks and how they build okay. it and how they actually do it on a day-to-day basis and run it. And it's it's really, really interesting. And like if, if yeah. you just look like it shows you what they're doing with like the, the animatronics and stuff like that. And yeah. it, you know, and how they built the business with like even the cruise ships and stuff, like you'll you'll watch it yeah. and you'll think, oh like, I'd love to like it's it's really it's definitely <laughs> worth watching if you're a Disney shareholder. Um yeah. it's probably something you could actually watch with your kids as well, because they'd probably yeah. be quite interested to see how it works. But it's, it's only six parts, but it's definitely worth watching, I'd say. Excellent. Well, it increased your conviction even more, right? Exactly. <laughs> We've now run out of questions from me and John, so that's just got right. a few uh, listener questions, if that's all right. Sure. Um, I felt we've covered a couple of them in conversation anyway. 
Um, so one of them is Bitcoin, yay or nay? Well, I'm not going to say yay or nay. I'll say may, sort of in between. So I don't, I don't own any Bitcoin. Um, I might, I might in the future at a small position. I, if I'm honest with you, I don't. I'm not a big fan, mainly because I don't fully get it. I don't understand it well enough. So I think if you look at it originally conceived as a technological in innovation, you know, blockchain and that kind of thing, but it's kind of evolved to a store of value. And I don't, I can't understand the model of it, right? It doesn't make anything. So I'm, I'm, it's probably partly a function of my age and you know, I'm probably a bit old school from that point of view, but the fact that it doesn't, produce anything it doesn't produce profits it's like a store it's like owning a commodity which i don't i'm not really attracted by owning commodities and the the other the other things i don't that would probably put me off is it's so responsive to sentiment and noise right so i think there's one of the crypt not bitcoin but one of the cryptos dog dog coin those I see I can't even pronounce it that's embarrassing you know Elon Musk will tweet on it and it'll go up 40 percent or whatever overnight so there's just something about that that just doesn't it doesn't fit with my investing philosophy and also there's a bit of a scrooge in me that doesn't like it because you can't own bitcoin in ISIS right no you can't no you can't so if you you, you can, great you can make a a great gain and then you'll you have you're, to face some you have to pay some tax, which I'm, uh, I'm quite. I'll try and keep as much of my portfolio in in, in ISIS, and I don't like that. So that it, that that discounts it immediately relative to owning stocks in a way where you can, you know, whether dividends or capital gains, you, you've got the full the full whack of that. So I'm, I'm probably more nay, but part of me thinks, you know, all this rhetoric. It could, you know, one Bitcoin could be a hundred k, or or in two years half a million. I think, oh, it's like a FOMO thing in a way as well. Yeah. I think you own some, right? You, you, do I do, you yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's, but you probably no, get it more than I do. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> for me, it's, it's, a, it's a digital gold argument. It, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I, um, yeah. I think if you look at the properties of gold and what makes it attractive, I think Bitcoin, in my opinion, actually fulfills all those properties better than gold does. Um, mm -hmm. As silly as it sounds, because it's, it's easier to transport. It's... It, it can't be faked and um, yeah. it's infinitely divisible. And there's, whereas, you know, with, mm -hmm. with gold, you, if you, and also I, I think a lot of people will say, oh, well, you can't, you can't go into a store and buy anything. What can you buy with it? But then, you know, if you go into Tesco and hand them a lump of gold, you, you're not going to get anywhere. So you might get arrested actually. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of lazy arguments that I think people make. And yeah. I think also with Bitcoin, I think it, it, for me, it's very, very important to separate Bitcoin from all the other cryptocurrencies because yeah. they, they aren't one of the same. They're just, no. I mean, Bitcoin, because it had a natural, it, what to call a natural birth, it's, it's grown in a way where none of the others are really able to because First, mm -hmm. the problem you'd have now is if you launch a cryptocurrency, where even if you say it's a better technology than Bitcoin, because everyone's looking for it, this next Bitcoin now, you get people piling in so early that it would end up so unevenly distributed. Yeah, it, it just wouldn't really function as a currency. And as well, you have issues typically where Bitcoin, what Satoshi did, where, did where, where he or she or they stepped away mm -hmm. from it after a couple of years. Again, I think that was really important. And if you look at a lot of these other cryptocurrencies, they talk about like using the blockchain and being decentralized and stuff, but then such yeah. a large proportion of 
of the currencies and not just of the currencies but of the influence is held by the founders that they're not decentralized at all so no i, I think it's a really really interesting asset um yeah and i i i, I do buy into the argument I, yeah for me i think the best no, I case scenario, i think the best case scenario for me is if it were to have a market cap equal to gold and i think if yes. that were to happen you that's i think the price range would be somewhere between two and four hundred thousand dollars a bitcoin which, right wow which is a big yeah yeah which is run I, up I, from here yeah I, and because it it does fulfill a lot of those properties better than gold yeah. as well which is why mm -hmm. i think it makes yeah. a lot of sense and I, I think as well if you get to a point which we are starting to see now where it becomes normalized to the level where if you're an institutional investor yeah would yeah. have a, a tiny allocation to bitcoin if you look at the supply and yes. demand and how much money could be coming in and what that would do to the price. So, for example, you had Ruffer a month or so mm -hmm. ago where they put 2.5% of all their assets in Bitcoin. And if that becomes a norm amongst institutions, yeah, not, there's there's so much more money yeah, going, yeah. going in than the current market cap. So you know, there's I, certainly legitimacy, isn't there? There's, I yeah, mean, there is. I think, is, is it is it um, Square, right? They've got a big position in, in Bitcoin. Yeah, um, they put one, it'll be a bit bigger now, but they, they put 1% of their balance sheet into it. One, um, okay. Um, well, I own Square, so I, there's a yeah. little indirect, is that I own Square, so there's a little indirect uh, ownership. On, there's a company on the NASDAQ, it's actually a rule breaker recommendation. Have you heard of MicroStrategy? Yes, I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so the, the CEO of that, he's massively into Bitcoin, but to the point where yeah. like, he put all the company reserves in it, yeah. And now every single month he's buying more Bitcoin because as the company makes profit, he just converts yeah. those reserves to Bitcoin straight away. So that's that's the way you can that's potentially bold. get exposure to it inside yeah. the ISA. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. There is a fund. There is a fund as well that is grayscale one. Uh, is it a Scandinavian one? I've I've read about, but I yeah, I, you know, I think it's it's you sound very convincing because I think you've done your homework on it, right? And you. You get it, you understand it. So I think it's it's something that I would need to get my head around uh, to um, to really, you know, there are a lot of other things that I just understand more yeah. and that are just more attractive, just because I understand them, which isn't a reason not to buy it. But that that's sort of where I am with it. Yeah, you seem to be doing all right with stocks. <laughs> you can't have them all, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So one of the other listening questions was when you discover a new stock, how does your research process usually begin? I think it, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd refer to the earlier. Um, so it can be, it can be articles around the, you know, a bit of just Googling some news articles or, or through Yahoo Finance, you'll get lots of shortcuts in terms of news around that company. Obviously some of the subscribe services that I mentioned earlier do brilliant deep dives into some of the companies. Uh, the investor website. So it, as, as I said, it's a bit of a triangulation process. It's not structured. I don't, I don't, um, it's, it's, it's quite chaotic actually. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll use a number of sources and try and join dots across them to form my, my view as to whether I'm going to pull the trigger or not. It's, uh, it's not really that related, but do you subscribe to the Motley Fool UK stock advisors? I do. I do. I do. I have and I do. Um, I don't, I mean, I think it's good, but I don't, I don't know. And I do own some of the stocks uh, on there, uh, but I don't, you know, I, 
I just find the ecosystem of the US ones far more attractive. Uh, I mean, in fact, you know, some of their recommendations end up being US businesses mm. anyway, right? <laughs> Not to, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. So, which, which is, which is a bit of an indication of. Um, you know, because there's not that many convention, not that many uh, recommendations that are given per, you know, the frequency. So that, that's a bit of an indication of how many clear opportunities there are in the UK. I think it's it's good, but I, I don't know if you've tried it. It's it's good. There's some good analysts, but it's not. I, I I'm, I'm more wedded to mm. the uh, to the US ones. No, I've got it. And I, so I so I did have um, Share Advisor US Rule Breakers mm. and UK Share Advisor. Uh, and then after the first year, I dropped Share Advisor US, um, just because okay. I, I was tending to pick more of the rule breakers anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the UK one I do quite like actually. Um, okay. I, I probably like it more now that I've not got um, Share Advisor US, just because at first, because okay. they, they, as you'll know, they split the recommendations into fire and ice. Yes. The ice, the ice ones are income, and the fire ones are meant to be capital gains. And yes. the ice ones are very good because I think the FTSE is well suited to that. But mm-hmm. then the fire ones, I think, like you say, they were struggling with. But then when they actually first started doing the US recommendations, I was getting a bit annoyed because it was it was a bit. Yes. I felt like I was I was paying <laughs> for these already on the US side, and the reason I subscribed yeah. was that I wanted the U, the UK one. But no, I, that's I right. Yeah, US share advisor. I'm a bit less triggered by that. And then, yeah, yeah. It's no, it's nice, still. I it's mean, it's nice when you own a stock as well, and it gets recommended across multiple services. It does. Well, that 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 helps to increase your sort of conviction in a way as well and you get more insight i mean the same with seven investing there, there can often be some crossover there and that just helps build build a picture even more yeah the next one is fubo do you think mm-hmm. it's still a buy oh i don't know i i i've i've i have a small position it's again it's in the sort of moonshot area it ran up stupid you know it ran up like 120 percent in two weeks so i didn't you know all this talking about I hold forever this one I was I thought it was a bit ridiculous so I I took out um 80 percent of what you know so what's left was my profit on that uh run up and I'll just see what happens but it's it's a less than three billion it's it's a bit of a moonshot you know there's it's quite interesting what they're trying to do almost be a sort of net you know there's kind of sports sports specialist and lots of rhetoric they're going to get into sports betting but it's quite a high ticket price to subscribe for it but it's one of those that yeah that was one of the few ones where I was probably a bit seduced by some of the noise on Twitter and I thought I'll I'll give it a little a a small position but I wouldn't be crazy to build it for for a while until I had more conviction in it would be what's your view of it I, I actually held it for two days. Okay. Um, so one of one of the services that I subscribed to recommended it, and it seemed to tick a lot of the boxes. So I, I took the I'll, I'll start with a small position, and then as I learn more, just because it's been quite difficult as well finding those kinds of stocks at reasonable valuations. Yeah. So it's recommended by a service I used. So I thought I'll just dip my toe in, and then if I like it more, I can add to it. But I, that way, I'm not missing out on it. Yeah. Um, but then within those two days, that was when everyone started talking about it quite a lot on Twitter. And the, the issue I had was the service that had recommended it. They quoted it at a market cap that s- seemed to not include the preferred stock. So it potentially uh, had yes. a market cap that was two or three times larger than what I thought. So I okay. just thought, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I've got too many question marks. And that it was yeah, literally, yeah. I bought it. And then literally that was when everyone, that was when, um, what's he called uh, I've forgotten his, what's called, you know that Rich who works for like Lightshed Media on Twitter? 
Um, he's an analyst, but he he came out with a short thesis and yes. described it as like the most convincing short he'd ever seen. And okay. There's yeah. loads of stuff like this, and I just, so I just you, thought, you I'm, thought not, I'm, I'm not comfortable with this. And it actually went up by forty percent in those two days okay. as well. So I yeah. thought forty two forty percent in two days on a stock I'm not yeah don't have that much conviction is I'll just take the money and run. Um, Fair enough. But yeah, if I, if I could do 40% every two days, I'd be doing Yeah, you, you wouldn't have to do this for long, would you? <laughs> no, <laughs> I've, I've, I've kept in, I mean, it's not, it's not necessarily a good way to think about it, but I've kept, I took out my initial position and I've sort of kept in, I almost consider that free. In free a way. money, yeah. Yeah, which is, which is a stupid way because I can still allocate that to something better, but that's how I, I, I if, it, you know, if they can pull off their, it's a bit like Jumia, who knows if they can pull off the thesis mm -hmm. if they do then 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 it'll be interesting okay so the next one is is investing a means to an end do you sell to take any income and if so how often well the, you know there will be an end at some point but at the moment no i don't take an, an income I, I i clearly will eventually and in particular at the right point uh dividend income so you know the the, the aim i think the aim is eventually to switch some of the more high risk growth positions into more dividend paying assets within an ISA to have, you know, the tax free income that gives. Um, but no, I, 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 I don't have all of my, you know, I always hold cash if I need it on the, on the side for rainy day. So, you know, a few months worth. So I, I don't, I don't ever need, I make sure that that's a must do to have a, have a cushion. Uh, in terms of cash and savings and uh, anything that's in, I don't need to get take out or or, or or anything like that. I'll just leave it there. Is my that's my strategy. Ideally, yeah. till you know retirement, whenever that will be. How many years, roughly, do you think it'll be until you retire? And at what point do you think <laughs> you'd start to switch the portfolio around to have that oh, more high know. dividend focus? Yeah, it's such a good it's such a good question, and I, I don't. I'm I'm already starting to think more about dividends. So I, I've I've stayed in a, a an objective I've made for myself um, is to grow my dividend income 20% this year. Okay, and I want I want to try and over the next 10 15 years try and grow my dividend income by around that level. Um, if you know, and I've 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 sort of again got spreadsheets that compound that. And you know that if I do that, I get to quite an interesting dividend income within an ISA, you know, at the age of sort of sixty or so. Uh, and of course, on top of that, there's pension as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't mind. You know, I've got a sort of number of uh, sixty in my mind, but then again, I've got um, three children as well <laughs> to have to, you know, who who are going to be, you know growing up and having needs and all the rest of it as well but I don't know I don't know I, I haven't I haven't um, formulated a solid strategy on that yet just a, just a general sense to, to grow a dividend income over time okay not something I'm really thinking about at the minute either no well you're right you've got a whole <laughs> lifetime my goodness Hopefully. well the way you've started and and you know your age you'll be able to finish when you're like 36 or something oh, I don't know about that <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm just. <laughs> no, if you yeah. get if I if you have a year like last year every year, and the numbers soon start getting well, silly, but because of that, you can't have a year like last year if, every year. No, that's, you can't. That's why yeah. it's a bit depressing because I feel like I might have already had my best ever year. 
Yeah, possibly. Statistically, when are you going to have another 100%? Yeah. No, true. It's not. It ain't going to happen, is it? But you, if you if you did that, then by the age of thirty, you'd be the British Buffett, I think, wouldn't you? Quite frankly, oh, you run out of money, don't you? When you compound them at that faster rate, you, you soon have all the money in the world. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I do love. I do love getting a calculator and just oh, putting different compounding percentages and just seeing what things look like. You've got a spreadsheet, and I love messing around with it. Yeah. Just, like, what if I just increase that by one more percent? And then... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, and it makes a huge difference over time, right? It does, yeah, it does. Yeah, so um, especially with your time horizon, it's brilliant. So how many hours a week do you spend actively on your portfolio? Um, not, 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 not that long, to be honest. Maybe a few hours. I think I'll... I'll go out on a run a few times a week and then I'll, I'll use that to catch up on podcasts, you know, where you get really good, you know, when there's, when it's earnings, earnings palooza, as they often call it. Yeah. That kind of earnings season, mm -hmm. you get sort of updated there, but you know, I'll, I'll be on Twitter most days, but maybe a few hours a week probably. And then I'll have a bit of a deep dive, a mini deep dive monthly, and then a, a, a fuller deep dive once a quarter. Probably. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not as obsessively looking at P&Ls and spreadsheets. I, I, I definitely heighten my focus during earnings season, more because it's fun and more for the hobby side of it as anything. It's just exciting to see, okay, who's reporting tonight? You know, last night it was it was Pinterest and, and, and Peloton, for example. It's just exciting, you know, nine o'clock, mm -hmm. markets close and you see, see how they did versus uh, expectations. It's just very exciting. It's quite a bit easier, I think, as well with, with some of the, the US growth stocks because there's so many good accounts talking about them on Twitter. So you get a lot of people who do a lot of the work for yeah, you, exactly. if I'm being honest. It's true. And this is, you know, this is where you're lucky, Sam, because, you know, as I said earlier, I had teletext when I was growing up. No, maybe not in my 20s, but there just wasn't, this is, there's just so much, it's, it's become, investing has become democratized, hasn't it? It's just so if, if you're willing to take the risk and do some research, everything's available out there for you to form, you know, to get insight and form an opinion. It's brilliant. And it's, and like it's surprising how many few people do, really, and especially in this country. It's, mm -hmm. it's an under, uh, underdone kind of hobby or, or, or pursuit in a way. Mm, definitely. Um, what's yeah. your favourite stock story then? Oh, that's, that, that's hard. I mean, my favourite... My, I'd say my favorite ones are the ones that I've learned the biggest lessons from. So, you know, Amazon is my favorite story in terms of a long-term perspective thinking, you know, I avoided buying that for a few years, you know, it's too high. It's, I'm not going to buy that. I was, it's too late. And then, and then it's, you know, it's, it's, it's gone and, you know, been a sort of 12, 12 times or whatever. I think, Zoom would be the other one, you know, bought first in late 2019. And, you know, that's the one where I've just been so, so lucky with timing. You know, that's that's definitely the, the flukiest um, purchase ever. But the, the one, my favourite stock story is probably the Peloton, the sort of, tra the one we spoke earlier, Peloton. So that, you know, talk about going from, you know, a dystopian sexist advert um, that wiped off. And I just thought it was a bit of a ridiculous so I've become this like, you know, big, massive fan. So it's just like the biggest turnaround, biggest turnaround in opinion about a company and a stock that, that, that you could think of. So that would be my, that would be my, uh, that's probably that'd be my favorite one in a way. Well, you would have said Tesla. Yeah, Tesla. 
yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I know. Yeah, I know what you mean. I guess it's maybe because we spoke about it earlier, and um, yeah, I've just sort of I, I take it a bit for granted in a way. Um, yeah, so that those are the more interesting ones in a way for me. <laughs> Believe it on. Okay, so I'm, yeah. I'm, I've gone through the full questions Great. now. So where can anyone Thank find you. you if they want to follow you or learn a bit more about you? Yeah, uh, on Twitter, uh, handle is at uh, Flosser Invest. So by all means, um, follow and comment and happy to, to be in touch. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It's I think it's going to be a monster. Episode. It's going to be the longest episode we've ever done, actually. No, you've given some really, really, really great insights. So it's been, I've really enjoyed it. So um, if no one else, just yeah. fine by me. I've, <laughs> no, I've loved it. I've uh, I've really enjoyed it, Sam. So uh, yeah, and I'll carry on enjoying your podcast as well. So thanks very much. Right, well, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIW Tweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.